Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In case you haven't noticed, we turned on the advertising spigot to help make ends meet. If you want to avoid ads and gain access to our Discord channel, monthly salons, and other good stuff, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to challenge the dominant narrative in the safety of friends, to promote the weird mutations of thought and deed that keep novelty alive. We will not be reverted to the mean. Here, everything stays possible. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, QAnon Anonymous collaborator, conspiracy researcher, and postdoctoral researcher Annie Kelly. You're going to honestly kind of study these fringe beliefs, fringe movements. I think that is something you should be prepared to do. You should be prepared to try as much as you can to kind of put yourself in that, that person's head. Annie is going to help us navigate the new landscape of conspiracy theory in a digital age. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. It's weird. I thought I gave this monologue last week, but I realized I didn't. I put all the notes together for a medium piece, but I never actually shared this idea directly. It's partly because I spoke it out loud. I gave a talk the other night for an event thrown by my good friends at Digital Void, who have been mounting what could only be considered evenings of stand-up memetics at nightclubs in New York City and beyond. And the theme of the evening where they wanted me to speak was called Memes, Myth, 
and magic. And it inspired me to think long and hard about the power of magical thinking and how essential it is to cultural alchemy and how easily we surrender it to these more evidence-based understandings of the world. The first memes that I encountered as a kid were supernatural ones in the occult and and paranormal serialized encyclopedia that I used to get. It was called Man, Myth, and Magic. And it came as these little magazines that you would then put into these binders and then stick them on a shelf until it made a whole encyclopedia. I guess a good scam, but it was also a great resource about like pyramids and Bigfoot and succubi and demonic possessions and the chupacabra. And they all functioned in this liminal space between real and fiction. It it got me started on Art Bell's terrific late night radio show Coast to Coast, which created this whole subculture around these kinds of ideas. Truckers would just call in at, at 3 a.m. to share their recent encounters with aliens or other weird stuff. And were any of these stories verifiably true? No, but they weren't completely false Either they were remotely possible on some level, and that in itself was enough to create some wiggle room in the authority of consensus reality. They were enough to pose or at least to practice what if. And as media became more interactive, these memes became what I called media viruses, spreading sideways through faxes and email and chat rooms and eventually social media. And they still released a certain power, the Rodney King tape. It exposed the untold story of black life in Los Angeles or Madonna and Michael Jackson's self-mutations. They asserted identity as plastic and self-determined or or memesters like Artmark, who became the Yes Man, or Genesis P. Orridge and Grant Morrison, they saw countercultural activity as a form of, of sigil. Artmark, I remember they got famous because they surreptitiously switched the voice boxes of G.I. Joe's with those of Barbie's and then returned them to the shelves of Toys R Us. <laughs> so these decentralized, largely net based activities they 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 were they were revolutionary there there was even you know the zapatistas movement in in mexico it embraced the mimetic power of their black masks they had to wear black masks to hide their identity from the police and th they used all sorts of interactive media viral media for the power of mimetic transmission and it it told their their hidden stories of of oppression in very new ways in global ways was the beginning of what we later called horizontalism. So mimetics, they were understood as a way to force alternative worldviews into the popular imagination. They were an assertion that things are not quite as they seem. Media viruses, at least as I defined them, they created cracks in the sanctity of everything from capitalism and the justice system to allopathic medicine. But when I finally met Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist who invented the term meme, I was surprised to find a, a staunch 
atheist with an absolutely materialist understanding of our reality. Memes were not some means of cultural alchemy for the counterculture. If anything, memes showed how little autonomy human beings actually have. According to Dawkins, memes, just like genetic code, are a kind of software determining everything about us. We're not even conscious beings. We're just enacting memes, right? Nothing going on here. This this almost eugenic understanding of human beings, it explains why someone like Jeffrey Epstein was so keen to fund scientists of Dawkins' ilk. It helped him justify that his victims were just soulless things. It's all just behavioral economics, a, a market. Or, as that logic apparently informs another tech billionaire, if memes and genes are the only things that matter, then just buy Twitter and impregnate as many young women as possible. Surrendering memes and culture to science is a bit like finding proof of one's gender identity in chromosomal chemistry. On one level, it's nice for someone who feels misgendered to be able to point to a hormonal phenomenon that occurred in the womb and has left a verifiable artifact in the genetic code. But any requirement to find official material proof of one's gender identification, that betrays the whole right to self-determination. How can, how can you, as Aleister Crowley offered, how can you do what thou wilt if it's already in the code? Likewise, if memes lose their basis in myth, they also, they, they, they lose their potential for magic. Memes are not digital units or programming code, however attractive those metaphors may have been in the beginning of the cyber era. Memes are alchemical in shape, but they are mythological in content. They find their origins in repressed pre-linguistic symbols. They are symbolic and allegorical, not utilitarian or realist. Like the work of the early symbolist artists of the late 1800s, the one we spoke about last week with Tom Negavan, they are less a product of dehumanizing industrial technology than they are a response to it. Memes are ways of conjuring, and you can only conjure with them if they're not locked down. Reducing memes to code and dismissing myth as superstition, that only disempowers us. It removes the wiggle room that a counterculture needs in order to operate. It leaves otherwise well-meaning social change agents thinking about how to upscale humanity with better code. And we've seen where the techno-solutionists want to take us. They're still using the most frightening memes they can muster about social media or AI controlling our thoughts in order to manipulate us themselves. They are playing us for our own good, they believe believe, but it's still manipulation. And we can't let that happen. We memesters, artists, writers, and cultural provocateurs, we are the players here. We understand that what most of us mistake for reality is just a social construction. It's an agreement between us, negotiated in an ongoing way. There are true conditions on the ground, and they matter. 
But we must not cede the power of our myths either, particularly not right now. The large language models currently invading our networks and consciousness, they represent the latest, perhaps ultimate expression of Dawkins' ultra-scientistic worldview. They are not conscious AIs at all, but probability maximizers. They look at past language constructions and generate the most probable combination of words based on a query. They are quite literally reverting us to the mean. They are the antagonists of novelty. Those of us who play with culture, whether memesters, artists, or activists, we must proudly reclaim the magical roots of our tradition. We must take the meme meme back. This started with UFOs, after all. AI-driven, techno-solutionist, eugenic capitalists assert the probable. If we want to keep things alive, we must instead assert the possible. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm really glad to bring you today's guest, one of my favorite podcast voices whose work and ideas I first encountered on the QAnon Anonymous show, for which she's a regular UK correspondent. And I was, I was surprised and delighted to receive an email from her asking for an interview for a postdoctoral project she's working on, looking at the ways conspiracy theory has changed as it migrated to the digital media environment. She's writing a version of her findings also as a big piece in the New York Times Sunday paper sometime this month. So without further ado, playing for Team Human today, the great Dr. Annie Kelly. I've been a fan of your reports to QAnon Anonymous and your writing in The Guardian and The New York Times for a while now. You're a scholar of the weird, the strange things people believe, conspiracy theories, and how they change in different media environments. And uh, that's what your uh, postdoctoral work is, is on and what you called to talk to me about last month. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm uh, working on a really brilliant academic project called Everything is Connected, Conspiracy Theories in the Age of the Internet. And a central research question with that project is, how has the internet changed conspiracy theories? 
And my background, well, I was, I was trained a little bit in ethnography when I was doing my PhD. So one of the ways I've been working to answer that question is just been getting as many interviews with people as I can, particularly looking at people who were working, I guess, in the field of conspiracy or counterculture or ufology, any of this kind of, I guess, countercultural sort of network prior to the internet, prior to social media in particular, actually. And try and get their impressions on what they thought had changed. Because I thought it would be an interesting perspective as opposed to just simply doing digital archaeology, which is often how a lot of these contemporary historical projects show up. You know, it's kind of you going on the sort of trying to piece together the old internet. And I thought it would be more interesting actually to hear, you know, impressions from people who were involved in some way. And yeah, I listened to a podcast episode of this podcast, in fact, uh, Team Human, where I heard you talking with Richard Metzger and you're talking about Operation Mindfuck, which is something that I had been researching and um, particularly you asking the question of whether it had worked too well. And I don't know, I loved that framing of it. It really felt like it spoke to a lot of the questions that were being thrown up through my interviews. So yeah, I thought, why not? I'll reach out and try and get in touch. But you said something that kind of stuck with me. It's been playing around in my mind a lot, where you talked about how conspiracy theories prior to the 90s followed the radio sensibility, and that they had a kind of beginning, a middle, and an end. And now in my job well, both as a postdoctoral researcher, but more in my job as a journalist where I'm um, attending all of these conspiracy theory rallies, which sort of started off being about COVID in this country and lockdown and vaccines, but have now morphed into the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum and climate change and traffic regulations. I guess uh, it plays around in my, my mind a lot. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is endless because no one's in charge. Do you know, no one's, no one's in charge of the story anymore. So it doesn't have that narrative arc. And that means that these conspiracy theories, I think, like the COVID conspiracies, like QAnon, just keep on going on and on. They're continually unfolding. So yeah, it was a very productive conversation. Well, the subject has been close to my heart for a long while. I loved listening to traditional conspiracy theory back in the day, like the, the Art Bell radio show. It consisted of people calling in late at night and just telling stories. Like I was driving in my truck and the engine stopped and the light shone through the windshield. My dog was going crazy and then I saw them. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then the next thing I knew it was morning and I was in my bed. You know, it was such a quaint way of hearing these things. It, the, but, but it was individual stories. And when this stuff went online, it all kind of fractured. Mm. That's what I was writing about in Present Shock, that everything became puntalist or, or hypertext. So anything could connect to anything else. So instead of having a discrete story about my experience of UFOs or the time I saw Chupacabra, now it's the harp weather station activity that gets linked to a hurricane in the Pacific, which is linked to the Fukushima reactor, which is linked to 5G, which is linked to Bill Gates. People are just trying mm. to make sense by connecting all of the dots. So the, the stories are not 
discreet. And neither are there communities who believe in them. And it's made for some awfully strange bedfellows like Naomi Wolf from what used to be the left and Steve Bannon from the new right, anti-vax new agers and QAnon truckers. Yeah, I guess the ideological porousness of lots of these movements. I mean, I was on the receiving end of this quite acutely uh, just earlier this week, because, or earlier last week actually, because I went to give a talk at an organization in, in this country called um, Skeptics in the Pub. And the idea is that you will give a lecture in a pub and people can come and hear what you have to say. And I gave a talk on conspiracy theories, and some um, believers in this conspiracy theory came up and started heckling me. And um, what was funny was I actually, this is, this will definitely give an impression of just like how, how small this country can be. I recognized some of them from some of the rallies I had been to. And one of the strange things that I found in their complaints, which were, you know, numerous in, in how they felt I had I'd misrepresented them, but also not just me, I think how they felt misrepresented in general was that they said, you know, I had characterized the the Great Reset as a right-wing conspiracy theory when, in fact, it wasn't about left or right. And, I, you know, I, I did sincerely apologize for this because I, I didn't actually mean to, to imply it was a, a purely right-wing conspiracy theory. I think some of the things that's been interesting about the Great Reset is how it's kind of fused left and right-wing critiques of, you know, conscious capitalism and things like this. But then they also said that I had a left-wing bias, And I was like, well, hang on, you know, how can I have a left wing bias and also this conspiracy theory not be about left or right? And I I don't know, I found this kind of a really interesting where they they were cross that they were being characterized as right wing, but they felt very definitely that their critics were left wing, if that made sense. And I think, yeah, it spoke to, I guess, the kind of boundarylessness of a lot of these conspiracy spaces, the fact that they all of these kind of uh, conspiracy narratives now occur in this this site of kind of context collapse where they're like not just conspiracy theories, they're also entertainment and community and spirituality in some sense. And it's all happening kind of simultaneously on social media. I mean, that has, I think, changed how people correspond to them as like an identity. But I think it's also make, makes the political character of them particularly difficult to kind of extricate. I'm doing a talk tonight about that very thing, actually, for my producer, Josh, is doing an event Mm. called Digital Void in the City. And the evening is called Memes, Myth, and Magic. And I'm going to argue in part that the left has handicapped itself by aligning so rigidly with what they're calling fact-based reality and relegating all conspiracy theory to the right. Because conspiracy theories create a a certain wiggle room, particularly if you don't take them too very seriously. And they, they give us new ways to think. I remember when I first wrote uh, my book, Media Virus, I was fascinated by memes from the occult and the counterculture, because we don't have to actually believe in UFOs or or chupacabra to, to see what I'm that that trying on these stories kind of changes the way we think about possibilities. <laughs> I remember I once 
got into this big argument with Richard Dawkins, of all people, who insisted we are living in a truly materialist reality with nothing weird whatsoever going on. It was at this this big party at an agent's house, and Dawkins was there yelling at Naomi Wolf, who was in her early incarnation as a feminist writer. And she was arguing that there's more going on here than meets the eye. And I tried to defend her, but he just lambasted us both, called me a a superstitious Mm. moralist, as if science has no open questions and human beings don't even have real consciousness, much less souls. There was no tolerance for that wiggle room and... Look where Naomi ended up. And I think I think it's when the left saw Bannon and Trump using conspiracy theory as a, as a form of disinformation that they ran over to fact-based reality as the only possible venue for productive discussion. Yeah. And they robbed themselves of the power of myth and magic afforded by encounters with more strange kinds of thinking. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's one thing I always have to preempt I guess a lot of my talks or a lot of my presentations with is that you know I don't think that being a kind of rational totally objective person is the opposite of being a conspiracy theorist I actually think that we're all kind of conspiracy minded and that's just that you know because humans are kind of skeptical creatures generally and that's kind of led to fantastic things do you know and I think we also all kind of you know, another sort of understanding of conspiracy theory, I think, particularly in the way it's kind of commonly used as an insult, I find really problematic. The way people will use it to mean sort of a belief that's kind of unevidenced or crazy or anything like that. Because I think, you know, conspiracy theorists, I mean, there has been so much research done on this. And as far as we can tell, it's actually more normal to be a conspiracy theorist or to believe in a conspiracy theory than not. So, you know, you're actually, if you if you don't believe in a single conspiracy theory, you were probably statistically the odd one out rather than the conspiracy theorists being abnormal. But we all kind of, I think, believe things based on trust or based on, I don't know, you know, not exactly a, a lack of evidence, but, you know, just we sometimes just take things on faith, do you know, a, a lot of the time. And this includes, I think, self-described skeptics and what have you. And I think I'm trying to work on a a better better term for this but sometimes when i'm out uh, at rallies and things like that i try and think of it in terms of like methodological humbleness do you know like trying to bear in mind for a great example is for instance the fact that i'm religious which doesn't really come into my work but i think it's sometimes good to bear in mind if you're going to be speaking to people about ufos about the great reset about i don't know kind of any one of these sorts of uh, ideas which might seem wacky or strange you're like well i go to church and you know, profess every Sunday that I think a man rose from the dead 2000 years ago, which is also a pretty strange thing to believe. Do you know, it's pretty weird. (laughs) And it's only been kind of granted a a certain legitimacy because of how long it's as a belief it's been around. But it is no more or less weird than the people who think that, yeah, there's going to be climate lockdowns in 15 minute cities and what have you. QAnon are the only people who are accepting what the techno-solutionists are saying at face value. The the great reset guy from Davos. Klaus Schwab. Yeah. The, the conspiracy theorists are simply behaving as if the abilities he claims, like to put every coffee bean and human breath onto the blockchain, are actually 
true. The claims of the techno-solutionists are scary and godlike. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that I'm getting more and more questions now about AI and what AI is going to mean for conspiracy theories. And again, I think this is really one of those things where it really does depend a lot on whatever kind of combination of faith and skepticism you're using to kind of look into the future. Yeah, so something I do want to get to is anti-feminism and conspiracy theory are interesting to me that that you went from kind of one to the other. I mean, anti-feminism is what led, I guess, to Gamergate and all, and maybe some sense that the world was aligning against them. But to some extent, the, the new conspiracy theory feels different from the old one, and that the old one was sort of long-time disenfranchised people, like truckers and weirdos, people who are up late at night and call into Art Bell's radio show and are talking and forming a community. Whereas the angry breed of new anti-feminist conspiracy theorists seem to be people who are mad that they've just lost their mm. perch atop the social hierarchy. That and there's they're they're more nouveau weird. <laughs> nouveau weirdos <laughs> as opposed to traditional weirdos. You know what I mean? It's like regular white yeah. dudes, not us weirdos. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that sort of contrast is precisely what I find fascinating about both anti-feminism, which I did my PhD on, and conspiracy theories. And I've kind of been dipping my toes back into a bit more to the anti- anti-feminism stuff with um, this sort of limited series I've been doing with my co-host Julian called Man Clan, which is all about masculinity influences. But I think I'm I'm very interested in this concept of of subversion and subversiveness and how I think ideas move actually from one to the other. You know, there was a time when it was completely accepted that women shouldn't vote. You were a mm. real freak for, for bringing up the idea that they should. And now there's an incredibly angry, tiny cohort on the internet who spent all their, all their time thinking about how life was, you know, society and civilization itself was ruined when women got the right to vote. Wow. So <laughs> I find this, and I think, you know, with vaccines as well, mainly just to keep myself sane over the lockdown, I did a little limited series about the history of the smallpox vaccine. And um, one thing I found fascinating was how the vaccination, which was vaccinating people with the cowpox virus, which was a much milder illness in order to give people smallpox actually derived from an older practice which was called inoculation they're kind of used interchangeably now but they do mean different things and inoculation was straight up just giving people like a a small enough dose of smallpox that it wouldn't give them like the full-blown thing but it would you know make them sick for a few days and then hey presto they're immune for the rest of their life and this kind of started in europe it was going on in places like china for a lot lot longer but in Europe, it kind of started as a bit of a like trendy fashion thing. You had these kind of uh, ladies who, yeah, you know, kind of, I guess nowadays they'd be Instagram influencers. But back then they were usually kind of diplomats' wives and aristocrats and things like mm-hmm. that, who pick up this idea in Turkey, think it's just completely fabulous and oriental and exciting and bring it back. But they are very much laughed at by the European medical establishment at the time as kind of trend seekers, as, you know, faddish types, which is what they are. 
you know. So I think it's like an interesting, yeah, story of, I guess, like how ideas can move into the mainstream, they can move into scientific legitimacy, but often not because people are thinking scientifically or thinking entirely objectively. Uh, you know, these kind of ideas and concepts go through fashions based on kind of material cultures and everything else. And I guess, yeah, I guess that's the the connection that I find interesting with all these ideas, you know, how how ideas move from being kind of stigmatized to mainstream and back again. But there's this there's this interesting moment wherein where I guess because we're partly trying to embrace the complexity of our existence, you know, a lot of people are seeing that the simple grids that we've used to define mm. the world that we're living in aren't really working anymore. And sometimes when those simple binaries don't work anymore, like gender or race, people get destabilized and upset. Wait a minute, am I a man or a woman? Is she black <laughs> or is she white? It's like, are they Mexican or are they American? Let's just put up a wall. It's like, let's mm -hmm. come on, this is simple. Sometimes they go that way, but sometimes they realize, well, wait a minute, things are more more connected and complex. And, and it's not that I believe that 5G towers make people crazy through, but... Indirectly, anyway, 5G towers mean more people, more tracked, more surveillance, more social media, more anorexia, more suicide. They do, right? <laughs> I mean, just it not as more of a high leverage point in a system than, than something. So in some ways, I feel like conspiracy theory is rising to do something very different than before. Like before conspiracy theory was great because it was actively destabilizing to kind of 1950s Eisenhower values. You had Paul Krasner at the realist inventing the conspiracy theory that that LBJ, uh, Lyndon Johnson, penetrated Kennedy's exit wound on the airplane. And it's like, oh, and people believe it for a second. And it has that, what we were talking about before, that it has that Operation Mindfuck effect on people who are stuck in the consumer dream and need to be shaken in a kind of situationist, detournement way out of their passive lunacy. We're not lunacy, but passive, almost catatonia, Valium consumer yuppie catatonia. <laughs> and now, though, it's like as if it feels conspiracy theory is a reaction to a world where all of those things have broken down. Things aren't mm -hmm. quite making sense anymore. The stories are being told about, bless their hearts, the stories we were told about COVID really finally weren't kind of true. They refused to accept any question about whether the disease was laboratory made or human made and now we're seeing well maybe it did kind of get out of that you know or that oh vaccines don't do anything wrong and it's like well some people yeah you know women have been having some kind of there are some documented issues we can't or boys getting myocarditis it doesn't mean don't take it but when your government is is playing that kind of walter lipman game if you will you know manufacturing consent by sort of slightly white lying to everybody you're going to get a, a healthy response of people saying, hey, wait a minute, the, what's happening here is more complex and interconnected than you're giving it credit for. I mean, so do you see in some ways the, if it is, the recent rise in conspiracy theory as a kind of a, a, almost a healthy, in some ways, a healthy immune response to a, a vastly oversimplified worldview that we're, that's being cast on us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I really don't want to 
I don't know, contribute to, in my reporting, a kind of alarmism about conspiracy theories. Because, yeah, as I say, you know, I think a degree of, of, of skepticism and a degree of, I'm trying to think of like the right word, but I guess kind of like rebelliousness of kind of, you know, cheekiness sort of against the prevailing consensus, I think is always a, is always a, a relatively healthy attitude to have in society. So I don't know. It's I'm I'm cautious to sort of, you know, say, uh, you know, that I report on this stuff because I think it's important. And, you know, I don't think it's just a bunch of fringe, fringe weirdos. I think it really has implications in terms of any kind of future strategy we want to have when it comes to climate change and things like this. So at the same time, I'm not saying, you know, it's all fine. But I'm also careful of, of creating a narrative which says, you know, these people are what stands in the way of us right. and progress or of us and, yeah, our kind of beautiful carbon-free future. <laughs> because that's exactly what they think we're saying about them. Do you know? I right. think yeah, I even saw a, a sign at one of the latest rallies I went that said, had a picture of Klaus Schwab. He's holding a gun pointing it, you know, directly to, towards the, the camera, so to speak. And it says, you are the carbon we seek to reduce. So mm. there's clearly this kind of sense, I guess, that there is a... Um, and there is. <laughs> there, I wrote about that. In, and there's one story I've never told it in public uh, oh, yeah? in the Survival of the Richest book, where I was on Zoom with these two social media, what you call them, kingpins or something, social media millionaires watching the January 6th protests on the multiple videos that were happening. And one of them said offhandedly, if you could push a button and have all these crazy people just disappear, would you do it? Wow. And it actually came, and it was like, I realized that was his fantasy. That was his technological fantasy. Was, mm. If you could, and these people know he's thinking that, right? They're they're correct mm. that this guy is fantasizing it, and that that guy could become the next Bezos or Musk or someone maybe with the power to do it, or they believe that Gates does have the power to do it. Yeah, definitely. Of course, it was it was a roundabout way to give everyone a virus, just so that then they would need the vaccine. You, know, <laughs> you might as well just put the bad thing in the virus itself. It's one one step less, but. Yeah, actually, I remember watching an entire COVID conspiracy documentary at one point, which said that the virus was caused by snake venom, which had been, which had filtrated through the water systems. But then they were like, the vaccine is also snake venom. And you're just a bit like, well, come on, which, which is it? Like, this isn't a neat, this isn't a neat narrative. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that was where I always got when, um, in that one and in a lot of the election stuff, when it was like oh, the Democrats are doing it, but the Russians are doing it, but they're there. All right. So which side yeah, is doing it Yeah, but Cuba's doing it a little as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who isn't meddling in these elections, honestly? Yeah. Poor things. No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I you know, appreciate your, your point. And I think it's a, a really good one to remember when you're in the kind of conspiracy debunking game is that. You can't become the Bill Gates defense squad. Like Bill Gates doesn't need me to defend him, do you know? Uh, Neither does Klaus Schwab and neither does the World Economic Forum. I think it's interesting. One of my colleagues um, on the Everything is Connected project, Mark Tutors, he's an incredibly intelligent, interesting guy talking about the Great Reset. He kind of described the conspiracy theories as something of like an immune response where he sort of said it was, you know, 
it's if you kind of think of capitalism kind of being in this crisis post covid and mm. the great reset is a is a kind of plan to re- recovery to you know stop the contradictions in capitalism from becoming so great that something terrible happens and we you know end up in a total turmoil and a new economic system and it's you know Marxist right. revolution or whatever yeah let's not throw out the evil baby with the bathwater yeah <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, he sort of said that, you know, so this is where this kind of conscientious kind of eco-friendly, you know, uh, capitalism comes in. It kind of smooths over the cracks, right, um, that have begun to show. Then the great, uh, the anti-Great Reset conspiracy theory is almost like the kind of immune response. It's like a kind of autoimmune disease, which is attacking the very thing that is meant to be protecting capitalism right. under the grounds that it's actually, it's... It's not capitalist enough. It doesn't adhere enough to the principles of sovereignty and freedom. And actually, we don't want any government, let alone, you know, government doing, you know, the example with 15-minute cities, zoning laws. Or- right. That's funny. It's like as if if we do want to play the left-right game with it, it's almost as if, you know, Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset people have so successfully masqueraded what they're doing as a kind of pro-social leftist mm, progressive mm. thing that the right has recognized it as such. Yeah. And is, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the very first anti-Great Reset articles, it's funny, when it got launched in June, there like really wasn't that much much fuss over it at first right. but one of the first first people who did and wrote an article saying you know this is the first step to communism was a fox news writer but it was kind of a there was still a little bit of a pause between then and when the kind of uh, i guess anti-lockdown anti or covid skeptic movement got hold of it which was later and that was because trudeau used the word reset in a un speech i think yeah but you know since uh, and this is going back but really since blair and Bill Clinton, the left has been neoliberal. The left mm. has been more more right than the right. I mean, Reagan, I don't think, was as as neoliberal as today's Democrats. This was something that somebody, you know, uh, when I was getting getting heckled doing my speech last week, this is something that someone brought up to me. They said, you know, the the left has abandoned their old kind of tent posts as you were of class and things like now and now they just agree with the establishment i don't know i'm I'm not clear that's the case i think you know there have been kind of you know left-wing movements which i think have been running separately to this kind of thing this kind of language that this register that is being responded to i think is less of a left-wing register and more of a kind of deep depoliticized register where it's almost kind of pretend well I mean, it is pretending. It is a little deceptive, I think, actually. Sort of pretending that these solutions it's offering are not political ones at all, but simple kind of technocratic ones where everything will just become more efficient. And um, this kind of language is, I think, really attractive to the people it's trying to persuade who are the political class generally and the corporate class. Because who doesn't love efficient solutions which are neither left nor right simply objectively technocratically correct but i do think there is a a level of repulsion to that register because it kind of sounds like your boss or it sounds like your boss you know when he's giving reasons as to why he has to like fire you fire half the team and give the rest of you everybody else's work and stuff like that it just i don't think it rings to like to ordinary people the same way as it rings to politicians and senators and mps and what have you so (laughs) people often 
you know, will say, why did they, why did they give it in their name like the Great Reset? Surely they must have known how kind of sinister that sort of sounds. But I don't think it's a case of where you can just, um, I don't know, PR spin that kind of register out of it because that's what actually makes it kind of sexy and exciting to all the people who do go to davos do you know right that it's as simple as pressing a button yeah you know? and we'll get this terrifically utilitarian mm. egalitarian you know world bank on steroids <laughs> green new dealish thing i mean yeah. and that's the other thing it feels like a lot of my aoc style progressive americans have also got into you know, they see Green New Deal the same way that Klaus sees the Great Reset, as if, mm. oh, look at this, we're going to have energy and jobs. And it's like, well, reading the Green New Deal is what turned me into a degrowther. I, <laughs> I finally went, oh, and, and to question jobs, too. It's like, why are we all so obsessed with jobs? I don't I don't want a job. I want money. I want food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think there's another path to that, although uh, people will tell me I'm wrong. But jobs, you know, jobs are pretty are a pretty recent phenomenon, as long as we're, you know, late Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, this is very, this is going to sound very academic of me, but it is a bit about, I think, you know, deconstructing what assumptions are being made in this, mm -hmm. in this political language. And I think almost putting the politics back in, like, you know, if your proposal is that it's better for there to be jobs with green energy and things like that, then say so, as opposed to sort of being like, you know, this is just kind of an efficient technocratic solution. And I think, I mean, I honestly, I think that's a little bit even about my own field, the way that conspiracy theory as a term has become a little bit ditched these days because it because it, it sounds too politicized and so people prefer to use disinformation or misinformation because that just kind of sounds like nice it sounds neutral it sounds like the problem is just kind of like this bad info that is just seeping through the internet do you know but i mean there's loads of stuff that's wrong on the internet and it's not all a similar threat i think so if we're being honest with ourselves the stuff that is a threat, either, you know, to you, depending on who you are, to, to the establishment, to, um, you know, minorities, to refugees, anybody, is because it's a theory of power. And I think, even though I don't love how conspiracy theory as a term, you know, has all of these baggage or this kind of pejorative connotations and things like that, I think it is at least more honest about that. It's about, it's more honest about the fact that it's a theory of power and that's what's alarming or exciting depending on on who you are yeah and it is different it, i mean there was you know the illuminatus trilogy and some of that great conspiracy theory in the earlier in the 60s and early 70s but for most of us conspiracy theory was just fun you know <laughs> it, was, yeah. it it didn't have this I don't know. You know, oh, did you hear about the Montauk project? They were like sending kids through a laser beam to do time travel. And it was a continuation <laughs> of the Philadelphia experiment where they moved a boat from here to there. And so there was, I guess there were some inklings of because the government has these secret programs they don't tell us about at Area 51 and, you know, 30 stories below the Pentagon. But it wasn't as immediate. It wasn't as topical. It wasn't in the injections we were getting. It was in some something. I mean, maybe those clouds that the jet, jet uh, chemtrails. Chemtrails was around yeah. then too. 
that's what I've been trying to, well, and, and the whole project I've been working on has been trying to figure out, I guess. We're like, what did happen to conspiracy theories? Because I think, you know, from all of the interviews I've done, I think I feel pretty confident in saying that something has changed quite dramatically. You know, I've wondered if it's just because my political sympathies a bit lie a bit closer to, I guess, some of the stuff that you're seeing in the pre-internet era where it's like, you know, the, the CIA did this, the CIA did that, you know, and largely I'm just a bit like, yeah, I can believe that, you know, it sounds like something they'd do. And most of it was true, Iran-Contra yeah. <laughs> and putting coke on the streets. It's like, oh, it was exactly. real. There's precedent, you know? Yeah. But I think, you, you know, one thing that I've spoken to so many people, and I think lots of people who were, I guess, in kind of conspiracy culture in the 90s will say is that it felt like it had this very playful kind of tenor to it. And that's not to say, you know, one of our interviews said, you know, please don't put me down in the paper as saying that I, you know, said, oh, it was all so much kinder and gentler in our day because <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you know, I don't want, don't want to sound like my grandparents talking about Elvis or something. Right. You know, it, it was obviously edgy. And I think some conspiracy material can read with today's sensibilities can can be a bit shocking. You know, you'll be just reading stuff. It's fun things about Bigfoot. It's, you know, experimental poetry. And then you'll just turn a page and you're like, whoa. Holocaust denial, do you know? Right. And I guess because it's all part of this kind of these stigmatized sort of communities who are railing against censorship and free speech, they sometimes don't make decisions that I think look particularly wise, given the kind of right wing turn that we see happen with conspiracy culture. At the same time, I don't think this change was inevitable. Do you know? I think it it was to do with how people saw conspiracy culture as something that could be marketed on social media. And hmm. most of the people that I spoke to did not view it as a as a money-making endeavor at all. It was kind of just a, you know, yeah, as I said before, playful, a way to expand your mind. And I think if you look at people like Alex Jones, who was originally part of that scene, you know, most people I spoke to had had dealings with him, had met him. I got some great gossip. He, I think, was somebody who just kind of had this personality which was just sort of made for the next era of the internet, for mm. influencer culture, for giving people conflict, giving people drama. But there's a, um, and I can say this as a relatively old person, it's as if the air we breathe is different now, that the atmosphere, the environment, the, the, the cognitive environment is so different. I find it so much harder and I know old people would say this anyway like to construct a sentence or to remember something but it's not that I'm so destabilized constantly I, I feel like people are so confused the students who come to college are confused about not just what job they're going to have, but whether or not there's such a thing as a job anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it's like everything. Will the world be here? Is the climate falling apart? Is it not? Is this? It's as if people are seem so much more destabilized that a good conspiracy theory, just like you say, you know, everything is everything. It's funny because I was going to do a TV show called Everything is True. And it was basically sort of arguing a similar a similar thing. Everything is true in a way, you know. It sort of would be the subtitle to that. But everything is everything, or everything everywhere all at once. A sense of dislocation and disorientation makes us gravitate towards anything that can connect the dots, even if it's 
nefarious. I'd rather believe that there's some evil thing, you know, destroying the society than this is just happening. Yeah, it's something I've been wondering for a while where I'm like, do people who think about, you know, well, for instance, we do know this happens. We do know that people who believe in QAnon, um, they have a future event, which they call the Great Awakening, which is when, you know, the scales will fall and everyone will see the reality of the secret battle that has been being waged covertly behind the scenes. I wonder if something similar happens with the conspiracy movement as in my country. I'm like, do people secretly want the Great Reset to happen, even as they protest against it? Because this will be a moment, right, where all of these kind of multiple realities that people have been living in kind of converge. And there's a kind of moment of, of shared understanding. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence, for instance, that the Great Awakening was originally a kind of religious term used... Uh, I forget. I forget where. Uh, I've been reading a, a, a book about <laughs> called uh, Strange Rights, which is all about kind of new internet-born religions, and she goes into a bit into it there. But I, I forget the exact history. Yeah, I do wonder if this is a kind of longing for a kind of imagined kind of consensus. Do you know that 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 existed historically, where much like I guess in the the people that I studied in my PhD, the alt-right kind of longed for this kind of mythical homogeneity of kind of race, of politics, of, of you mm. know, this kind of happy gender hierarchy. Um, I wonder if there's a kind of similar longing with these conspiracy theories that even as they kind of look forward to this kind of event where this reality will break, where everyone will be forced to say, you were right. And, you know, even if it's a dystopia, it does actually put us all on the same plane of reality again mm. do you know everything stops being everywhere all at once we're all just finally in the great awakening or we're all just in the great reset and it's a bit of an experimental thought i haven't like properly properly worked it through but it's something i'm thinking about well in either case at least we get relief at least we get mm. to the place yeah you guys talked about it a lot on on q anonymous there were so many times when they were like okay Two weeks from now, mm. it's going to happen. Yeah. Get your stuff ready. Don't go out. Just sit. And there was the, also the other part of the fantasy I loved in The Great Awakening was it's all like taken care of. They had these slogans that basically yeah. meant you could just sit home yeah. and just turn on the TV <laughs> and it's all going to happen. Everything's taken care of. Yeah. And that was something I found really unusual about QAnon, actually. It still just strikes me as just really unusual how much passivity there is and how much faith there is in the state even when your kind of villains are the deep state are the baddies in government you still have the white hats who are the good guys who are fighting them and um yeah that element that you pointed out where it's you just have to sit and watch you just you know grab your popcorn and just and watch watch you know your enemies get vanquished that to me felt quite unusual for a conspiracy theory yeah, that usually you have to go do something. We've got to band together and storm Area 51 and find the yeah. aliens and free them. I mean, even with January the 6th, you know, like there's this element of of shock, I think, on behalf of lots of the participants when they start getting policed like a subversive movement would, you know, when right. they I remember just watching this video because it was such a strange event in that we all kind of watched it happen live. 
and you know this one woman is you know she's kind of staggering back from the from the fray she says something about the police pepper sprayed us and she just can't believe this has happened you know and she looks like a kind of nice suburban white middle class lady and you sort of think like i guess this maybe probably is her first experience of of being on that side of of the state and the the violent arm of the state do you know right and you do sort of get this sense with january the 6th that even as it was a a, you know riot against the kind of very levers of power in washington dc lots of people you can hear them in the live stream talking about how the army is just right behind them and they're sort of the first wave so it's just like this really intriguing positioning to me where it's a conspiracy theory but it's a conspiracy theory by people who view themselves as more or less on the the right side of power still which i think is very right and that i think speaks to what you were talking about a bit before how with the kind of difference between yeah i guess conspiracy theories as being a a hobby of the powerless or people who see themselves as powerless Right, that in this case, they genuinely believed that like General Flynn and mm. some battalion was going to come in and retake the government for Trump. Yeah. Right, yeah. but they were it's just I've, alone. Yeah, I've even noticed in um, at the protests in my own country, you know, that often, particularly the anti-lockdown protests, people were really, and the, the, these gathered, you know, tens of thousands of people in London at their, at their height. So a really large large protests but people would um feel very shy and i think would get quite angry at people for for stopping to stare at them as they march through london and you sort of think like you know if you've been on a protest this is what happens people just gawk at you do you know <laughs> because you're you're something <laughs> unusual you're something that's breaking up the mundanity of um day-to-day life in the city so people just stop and stare but I could could see in the protest that people were getting very agitated by this. And I sort of thought, oh, you haven't been on this side of a kind of subversive movement before. Do you know, this is your first time being a subversive. Aww. And I, I guess I found that like, <laughs> yeah, it was quite, quite sweet. Um, but it, it, for, in the way it characterizes a protest movement, it's also really unusual. Most protest movements will be you know, steered by old activists who have been doing this for years and years, even if they're the kind of rank and file and lots of idealistic young people. So that just struck me as, again, something that felt unusual about these movements, these sites of activity. Yeah. I mean, there was some naivete, I remember back in the um, Occupy Wall Street when Mm. that happened. And then at the end, and we were the older ones of us were saying, you know, the cops will come. They're going to clear this place out. And then when you're there and the cops did come and people are like, my books and my tent are over there. (laughs) I know, I know, but it's my tent and my books. It's my books. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you're getting those back. I think, I think those are gone. (laughs) And they were just like, so confused. It was so sweet. I mean, it was so sad. It was really brutal the way, the way that went down. But for me, it was looking at the faces of the kids who didn't who hadn't really accounted for how this was going to go down, that it's not yeah. just like they call your parents or something and say, you have to go home. You know, it's it, it minorly, but violent, you know, finally. Yeah. And, and the confiscating of your stuff. I think that a lot of the January 6th people did, not that they were tourists, but a lot of them were not that sort of violent sort. And they did just march through. We're in the Capitol now. We're, look at this. Yeah. Oh, wow. And th- th- now I'm in trouble? Oh, it didn't, it just didn't make sense. I felt bad for them on that 
on that level. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the kind of realization that it doesn't particularly matter when you're part of one of these subversive movements, like, you know, how violent you're being, you personally, that the, as you say, the, the cops aren't just going to sort of simply just kind of walk through and, you know, kind of assess, they're going to view you as a yeah. kind of mass that sort of needs to be subdued. I think it's it's a really changes people, but it's really curious when when that experience happens, you know, if you're in an ethnic minority, you may have this before you're this kind of realization, this understanding before you're even fully conscious of what the state is, do you know? And mm. so it's just, I think it, it really changes people's understanding of, you know, their responsibility to the state, the state's responsibility to them. But I think all of this stuff is incredibly crucial when we're discussing conspiracy movements, which are born out of this sense of mistrust, do you know? Right. I know. And it's it's hard. I mean, uh, uh, what America just went through, uh, well, Europe too, with, with COVID and vaccines and having to trust authorities enough to let them inject you with something that mm. a lot of people are saying is no good for something that we still don't know what it was and where it came from. It's hard. It was like multiple levels in to, you know, we had, we had, you know, the internet, then we had Trump and we had disinformation, then we get COVID. Now we're supposed to do a vaccine. It's like, wait, <laughs> it's just too many, too many layers of, of trust. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it is hard. It's hard. I mean, that's, and it's sort of what, I was most interested from you. I I've still vacillate between hope and despair as I kind of observe and engage with these scenes. I'm wondering, do you, this is not a fair question to someone, to, to your academic hat, but hopefully <laughs> to your, your spidey sense, do you feel like things are resolving that kind of frenetic, jagged cultural wave is smoothing out a little bit. I mean, two friends of mine who were deep into the Q thing have mm. kind of returned into my life in a, mm. in a way. And there's been some even mutual apology uh, for that of like, yeah, things were kind of, that was kind of fucked up, but, but let's, let's work this out, you know? And yeah, so I might still be a little bit more afraid of the right than I am of the left. And they're a little bit more afraid of the left than they are of the right, but we're all basically just afraid of everything, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and bonding more over that than antagonizing each other. I mean, do you see that? Is it a little less frenetic and, and, and jagged and oppositional now than a few years ago? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Because I think you're right that that Lots of these um, conspiracy, I guess, waves do seem to have, you know, there, there was a moment where it felt like they kind of had this unstoppable momentum and they were just picking up thousands and thousands of people just as they kind of traveled across the internet. And then, you know, in some places through, you know, real physical communities, churches and mother and baby groups and stuff like that. And it feels like that is not happening to as such a kind of bewildering and overwhelming extent anymore. I think what seems to happen is, as you kind of pointed out, these they capitalize on on moments of crisis and uncertainty, uh, moments where they, there does feel seem to be this kind of fork in the road of like, oh, what do we, what do I do, and and what happens next? And certainly, you know, the COVID skeptic movement that I followed was, as I said, you know, was pulling in tens of thousands of people for, in London and then kind of about 200 and maybe 300 at one of the last uh, 
protests I went to. I mean, largely mm. because the main thing that they were protesting, lockdown, had, you know, totally stopped, essentially. Right. By then they'd kind of moved into the, the, the super conspiracy theory of the, of the Great Reset. So I guess what I often think happens is, you know, these groups, they shrink, but they stay kind of quite highly mobilized and they stay ready for whatever, for, for the next crisis that comes along. And they're, they're fully mobilized for when it does. So in my, in, in, you know, our country's case, it wasn't even really a crisis, but um, I think it was a real show of strength when, you know, about 3,000 people went and showed up in the city of Oxford here in England uh, to protest some local traffic scheme, which they had uh, decided was part of the Great Reset and the beginning of climate lockdown, so we'd all be locked in our home. And you sort of think there's no way they would have been able to do that had they not mobilised together already over COVID. So all those networks were there and they were ready, do you know? And even we brought up 5G earlier, I think something similar happened there which I have to confess, even as someone who was working in this field, my eye was kind of off the ball there. I guess like everyone else, I was just too busy mm. watching COVID happen. But yeah, something like 10 to 15 in the first month of lockdown, I think, 10 to 15 5G towers were just vandalized in this country. And that actually shows, again, a real level of mobilization that was happening where um, before they'd even really decided what the narrative was going to be around COVID. Right. I mean, there was an existing movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you know, with all the electromagnetic radiation, yeah. the cell phones at your face are going to give you brain cancer, which all might be true for all we know. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not putting that thing next to my head. But, <laughs> you know, but there were a lot of, I mean, I knew those groups, those networks. I'd seen yeah. the, the, the very, so they were, they were the obvious people to pull from. It's just... Then who's pulling? Is that, that that's what I always wonder? And I sound like a conspiracy theorist myself, but is it just a, a Russian troll bot going, "Oh, there's a go tear down that five G tower"? You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I guess this comes back to what I was saying right at the beginning of our conversation, which is that I don't, I, I don't really believe anyone's in charge, you know, and that's kind of what makes these groups so chaotic and. Interesting, really. You <laughs> said wonderfully interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of like a little bit a little bit scary, a little bit interesting. Because, you know, I think I can see lots of political actors sort of try and figure out how they can make this work for them. Do you know? So for instance, I've seen far right politicians show up at these conspiracy rallies just to kind of they can kind of see there's a mobilized movement there. They're like, how can I how can I get this working for me? How can I manipulate this to to my political ends? As comforting and as scary as the thought might be that those guys were actually in charge, were secretly secretly running it. Scary because, yeah, you wouldn't like a kind of far, far right politician to have that much people power. Comforting because it at least in the way all conspiracy theories are comforting, they still have a human in control and therefore humans can stop it, do you know? Right. And I kind of think nobody is in control of these. They kind of move in the same way that social media like trends and stuff move where people are, are pushing and people are prodding and people are kind of trying to make it work but it still sometimes feels like a bit of a, a mess as to as to where it's going to end up next yeah i would agree that there are these these chaotic systems and i started to think of people like bannon and trump less as 
instigators, like mm. less as people who could move the weather yeah. than people who see where the weather is going and they can, they sort of jump into the standing wave of discontent on Twitter. You know, they kind of hop in and they sort of surf it for everything it's worth. I, I, like the first one who did that, that, that I remember was like uh, uh, Charlie Sheen when he, you know, went crazy on Twitter. Mm. He, he, sort of capitalized on a strange moment. It was right after the uh, kind of failed Iranian Twitter revolution. There was a, a weird lull and he kind of jumped right in and went crazy. And we needed something less serious and political happening on social media. And it, it was bizarre. And then the, I always saw Trump. That's why I didn't really think he'd be president. I thought it would die down before then. But I saw him as the next Charlie Sheen, the next person who was willing just to kind of like throw himself on the mosh pit of of digital <laughs> activity and get carried like you know when they when the rock star throws himself out on the stage with yeah. his arms out <laughs> it was sort of that and he got carried by the wave and that's sort of the same as a as a bannon they're really good at jumping into the wave and then acting mm. as if they've made that wave yeah. even though they've really just they're really just surfing it yeah no i think that's that's exactly how i've come to think of it as well and i mean it's it's a good thing to bear in mind as well, I think, especially when, yeah, certain actors actually want to, like Bannon, will want to build their legend around kind of having created this movement. But, you know, I think often they are they are trying to trying to hold on, trying to kind of surf it. And it's instructive, I think, for that reason to know your history of these movements and to, to see where that doesn't always work. Because otherwise, I think, particularly if you, you know, are afraid of what seems to be a kind of far-right trend in, in Europe and, and lots of countries. It's important to remember that they, they don't have superpowers, do you know? They're not constructing this, this wave of discontent out of nowhere. They're often sort of opportunistically trying to, to see where it, can, where it can benefit them. And, um, and it doesn't always work. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit like, actually, as I was, <laughs> when I was speaking to my um, hecklers last week, I was sort of trying to be like, you know, look, they were sort of saying there have been real conspiracies and, um, you know, agreeing. I, I accept the premise there have been. But I was like, but it's also important to remember that, you know, sometimes governments will try to do a conspiracy and it doesn't work. Do you know, it just doesn't doesn't kind of quite come together. Mm. And, you know, like, yes, psychological operations exist. You know, yes, um, security services, intelligence services are often trying to, you know, see if they can gently kind of nudge a, a population that they see as insurgent or subversive one way or the other. But oftentimes these these attempts fail. <laughs> because people just don't kind of don't kind of get the strategy right they don't don't kind of bring it together and in fact um it's important to bear in mind even as you maintain a kind of skepticism around these institutions to also not kind of grant them demigod status do you know Right, which they certainly love. I know that was my whole thing with these tech bros that they really, you're not getting to Mars in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to be dead and you're not getting your brain up into the cloud at Google. You're not, you're going to die like the rest of us, Ray Kurzweil. You're not going. It's not happening. Even these AIs that they, I don't even call them AIs. These l large language models are not mm. AIs. We do not have AI. No one's made an AI. I mean, I, the Tamagotchi was closer to an AI in my room. Closer to an AI than your friggin' Google search. I mean, these are like, you know what I mean? They, they feel like they're search engines with good Wikipedia-like responses that, that are convincing on some level, but 
they're not thinking machines. They're not mm. the thing. And we, if we take these dudes' power at, at face value, I mean, I'd be a conspiracy theorist if I really, mm. if I did. Because it's not there. My God. I wanted to ask you this. I went to Montreal. It was one of my first like internationally trips in a long time, really, since COVID. Went to Montreal, and I did this talk. And afterwards, all these people came up to me saying, I'm so sorry you're in America. If you need anything that I can do, if you need a place to stay up here to get away. Oh, wow. I mean, well, you're in England, which maybe it's the same thing. But from your perspective, is America in a more crazy proto-fascist space now, you know, between, between you know, DeSantis and Trump and abortion rights being taken away and anti-trans and mm. school districts not teaching about black history. I mean, is it different here than the other places that you have been? <laughs> That's a really intriguing question. I mean, you know, Europeans love to love to feel a sense of superiority to America. And, you know, sort of say, you know, oh, oh, those those poor, poor backward Americans, what are they, what are they doing now? But I think this can be a bit of a a comforting illusion, actually. Um, And particularly in my own country, I mean, it's a bit of a joke that you have to watch American politics because whatever happens there will happen here within five years time. And that's a bit of a a generalization. But um, I think, you know, there's significant differences in terms of religion, I think, in the UK and America. But also, you know, we should bear in mind that there's there's an, a degree of truth to it. Our political trends do tend to like kind of mirror in, in strange ways. Well, they do even the other direction. I mean, you got Brexit, then we got Trump. And, know, you know, through very yeah. similar means and, and emotions were, were behind those movements. Yeah. And, and both times everyone decided the problem must be must be Russian meddling in Facebook. And- <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, what if it, and Russian meddling, you know, yeah. it's like... <laughs> It's, it's, it's just a, a little bit of Russian meddling or a whole lot is not going to, it, it would have to be tapping a uh, an underlying trend, a, mm. an untapped vein of culture. Yeah. I mean, it's funny for me where the thing, where the tide turned was um, during the, so long ago, you probably weren't even alive, but when OJ Simpson got chased in his Bronco, <laughs> it was this moment in American media mm. where in real time, we were watching O.J. Simpson being chased by cops, and he's going very slowly on the highway. And if you lived in L.A. at the time, which I did, people would see him in the Bronco on the highway and run out of their houses wow. to then watch it go by. And so they were kind of literally running onto their own TV screens to see this thing happen. <laughs> and then this long, strange trial with all sorts of things like DNA mm. evidence. And is it true? And was it he planted and confessed conspiracies of, of these, you know, white cops against this guy, which kind of was an echo of the Rodney King thing, which really was white cops killing or, mm. or trying to kill a black guy. It was such a weird moment that I feel like after that, between that and 9-11, we just were so destabilized that I feel like we've never come back. It's like this weird, we took like a bad hit of brown acid, you know, <laughs> that, that's the famous acid from the, the Woodstock where they're like, don't eat the brown acid. Somehow during those years that the only way I could think to restabilize is that's why I'm pushing local, you know, meet your neighbors, mm-hmm. do favors for your friends, uh, you know, have, because the, the the world that you and I are talking about is largely an online, I mean, you get to go to some conferences and meet the people, but the alchemy is occurring online in forums and meme exchange, mm. 
which is not a normal social space. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. It's funny. Well, <laughs> there was a bit of a, a joke in, in my generation, the millennial generation, that, um, yeah, the combination of being online and then uh, these kind of chaotic events, like these chaotic upsets like Brexit, it was a joke amongst our generation that it just broke all of our parents' brains. Do you know? Um, yeah. that it just, it, it, it was too much for them. And so many of them went down weird rabbit holes, whether it was like right-wing conspiracy theories or, you know, just getting incredibly stuck in on this one issue and getting into fights and stuff. But one person it did not happen to was my own father. And I often credit what stopped him from, from getting this disease that so many of my friends' parents were getting was that he'd just been a activist in local politics all his life. You know, he just uh, was a volunteer for his local Labour Party. And that's just what he what he did with his time. And I often wondered if, you know, we could somehow expand this, <laughs> expand this solution where it's like, you know, you don't have to sign up to a political party. I get that that's not everyone's thing. But it's just something like that, which is, you know, is, as you say, keeping you engaged lo locally. It's keeping you busy and it's, Crucially, I think keeping you with one foot in the in the real world, even if you must do all your yeah. Instagram and and what have you. They're definitely, I mean, in my town, the very best thing for the uh, red blue divide because we're a very evenly kind of well, maybe we're more blue than red, but but very staunch. We're Bernie and Trump. There was no Clinton and Bush here, so it it was it was oppositional. It was um we had a big hurricane. Um, Ida mm -hmm. came, and we all had to get together and dig our neighbors' houses out of these huge like muddy slides. It was just working with these people, you know, who were the other side. We realized, oh, right, we all live here. We're all have the same objectives. And it made the politics on TV seem like a TV show. It's like, oh, you watch Friends and I watch, Ma I watch MASH. But mm -hmm. really, that's the main difference in our politics, you know, <laughs> yeah. which... <laughs> which channel, you know, we happen to watch for these these stories that we have nothing, I hate to say it, but we kind of have nothing to do with the stories that are being told by these folks. We, Except on the very tail end, we're all fucked over by, you know, mm -hmm. fucked over by both sides one way or the other. But I, I think you're right. It's that real worldness. And the other people that I saw as, as relatively immune from the crazy conspiracy theory and the sort of rabbit holes you're talking about were people who had spent time with Robert Anton Wilson's books. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, on the one hand, he was telling jokey conspiracy theory. But on the other hand, he was kind of giving people the tools they needed to to move through that those spaces, you know, his biography, Cosmic Triggers, a life changing book for me, because it really, he went through all of the conspiracies and came out on the other side, realizing they're all true. None of them are true. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's all okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my interviews, um, they used a phrase, paraphrasing, I think, Robin Anton Wilson, which I thought was just such a lovely way of looking at things. So they said, you know, what they liked about conspiracy culture was it trained them to try on new paradigms, like a new pair of glasses. Mm. And I don't know, I thought that was just like such a charming way of kind of, yeah, configuring this like, culture because as you say it's giving you a way of putting those lenses on examining what that might feel like but not being committed or beholden to any any one particular it's like i think if you're going to if you're going to honestly kind of study these fringe beliefs fringe movements i think that is something you should be prepared to do you should be prepared to try as much as you can to kind of put yourself in that that person's head 
And, um, you know, this is something that academics will debate about whether it's even possible, whether it's desirable, whether we should just be kind of affecting the kind of shouldn't be pretending to be anything other than what we are, which is a an outside observer looking in. Uh. But personally, I think it's it's more helpful to to think of it this way, do you know, to um, oh, yeah. try and, try and to, imagine. Yeah. Put on, put on their glad. Yeah, visit their reality tunnel, mm. you know, mm. and go in there. And I think that's it's interesting. I feel like that was easier to do in the television media environment than the digital one. I mean, this goes. Oh, I'm a media theorist, so I think of everything this way. But McLuhan talked about how television was about illusion because it's frames that you're putting together and you're participating in this sort of creation of a story on this box. Whereas the digital, he said, would always be about memory and perfect recall and fact. And it feels like we moved from the kind of fictional medium of television to what's supposed to be the non nonfiction, factoid-based reality of digital, which is why we can't try things on quite the same way. There isn't the same sort of wiggle room on the internet that there was in television, that sort of blurry, especially the blurry low-res television. Is it true or not? But it's fiction. It doesn't matter. I can watch a show that has a character. I could try on, you know, all in the family. I could try on a bigot's worldview to understand how he's thinking. It, It didn't have the same intensity now. And now it's like you see something online, you can't speculate online. If you speculate incorrectly, you could be canceled, which mm. is a television term, but you could be you could be canceled forever. You know, so there's not that that open, weird speculation thing. So that conspiracy theory becomes so hardened. It becomes the art of conspiracy theory, which mm-hmm. is let's play, is not available to us. It's more like let's, you know, let's fight. I found the truth. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's kind of become very inflexible, as has, I guess, so much of kind of culture so mediated much. online. And brittle. Yeah. Right. It's a brittle feeling. And that's, we're not going to go very far if we're this brittle. And it's it's so strange because it feels to me like so it's almost the total opposite of what the promise of the internet was initially. Do you know? Yeah. If we're talking about kind of differences between uh, conspiracy culture pre-internet and now, you know, one of the major ones is that I've noticed is just like the optimism around the internet versus, I guess, the way that conspiracy cultures will view it now, which is like as a a tool of censorship and surveillance and control. Mm. And I want to stress, you know, I'm not I'm not saying these are fantasies. I think they're they're all a little bit true, even if not in the the way that they're kind of imagined in in these particular scenarios. But do you know, like there's a it's it, you, you kind of read like writing from the 1990s about it. I think even, you know, uh, your guest on the show when I, I w- listened to it with Richard Metzger, I remember reading something he'd written about how it was, you know, this kind of incredibly like liberatory tool because information was just no longer bound by borders right. or institutions or any of these kind of previous gatekeepers. And I could really understand that, you know, in there to borrow the the term, I could, I could understand that paradigm and it made so much sense. So it's maybe less a question of, you know, what happened to conspiracy theories and more, question of just what happened to the internet in general that made conspiracy theories along with so many other kind of political or cultural phenomena turn into this kind of yeah brittle inflexible mode of of discourse yeah i mean a lot of that i would i would not to give the uh, social dilemma guys any credit because they're i mean they're <laughs> almost great great reset in their 
you know, techno solutionist mm-hmm. way of thinking about the world and being having technologies be humane to people. But I think they're right in that it was the the introduction of the algorithm yeah. to these spaces that just amplified the most you know sensationalist mm-hmm. and and inflammatory memes and and created these feedback loops. So we couldn't just like oh, I'm going to go be a dog in this social media space today. You know, it, that was the way it was. It was like, oh, I'm going to see what it's like to be on, you know, uh, English-speaking Japanese Usenet boards as an American girl <laughs> yeah. and see how they, they respond to me differently than when I'm just me. And it was, it was try it out. It was all about trying stuff out. And I remember when they put the banks on there, I was thinking, no, wait a minute. You can't put banks online. This is a play space where nobody is who they say they are. But we're all just, it's like a giant fantasy role-playing game. And you're going to put a real bank with real money in the middle of Dungeons and Dragons? Are you serious? <laughs> right? But yeah. I, what I didn't realize is, oh, the whole thing would become the bank. And, mm. and, <laughs> yeah. and then our Dungeons and Dragons became truth rather than the speculation. And then and the kind of worst part of it all is that it would then become mandatory to be online. So, you know, I think this is often, uh, there's a writer in my country called Hussein Kazvani who always writes mm. really interesting stuff about the internet. But I remember him writing once about how these kind of digital detoxes that people do where they sort of, you know, say I'm deleting all of my apps, I'm throwing away my phone, have become this kind <sighs> of privileged sort of signifier where only the super rich can actually afford to do that because the rest of us our phone and our our internet presence is now how we work it's how we bank as you say it's how we like connect to all of these other things so it's actually yeah even even as the solution is just like to kind of it's just obvious and it's obvious that all of these um kind of VC kind of Silicon Valley types know how poisonous their product is because they keep on getting away from it. They keep on going on these, um, on these retreats where they're, you know, totally phoneless. Right. They're so cool. They go to their, their, their organic farm with their goat share and their Rudolf Steiner schools for their kids. And it's like, oh yeah, you do that. (laughs) I've got to scan on this fucking UPC sticker thing in order to park my car at the mall to get my kid a t-shirt. Fuck you. You know, and I'm there, I'm there with these, what are those called? QR codes. I mean, Mm. it's weird. My hands, I go to the airport, I put my hands under the sink and for some reason my hands don't make the water come. I'm like a vampire. (laughs) My phone doesn't get the QR code. I'm getting tickets. I'm just, I'm a mess in this world. And I was one of the original advocates of let's, but I wasn't, I didn't think we would have to use it for like real stuff. Mm. It's like being an advocate of basketball and then like basketball becomes like your job or something. No, no, no. (laughs) It's odd, but yeah, it's mandatory. You're right. It's mandatory. But my daughter went to the Taylor Swift concert and you had to have a, there's cashless. Yeah, it's a cat. And it's like, talk about conspiracy theories. I remember when we first talked about the cashless society, it's so that they could track every transaction and know everything you did. Well, yeah, no, that's that's still going. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a valid. I mean, honestly, I mean, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but capitalism, even though no one's in charge of it, it's a fucking intense conspiratorial power. Yeah. (laughs) It's eating the world. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. I sometimes think that a lot of what the Great Reset has done is just kind of like magnified these trends and made them intentional and then given them the the human face, right? Because it's all about Klaus Schwab and he's the kind of villain of the piece. Right. 
poor thing. And he was only trying to do what the Whole Foods guy did. You know, yeah. oh, let's make a conscious <laughs> capitalism. Let's, you know, create some yeah. good language. And they took some of my language, too, about stakeholders and stuff. Yeah. You know, let's just work in this, weave in some of this Club of Rome, Naomi Klein, you know, Green New Dealy stuff. And then they'll stop yelling at us for another decade so we <laughs> can keep making our returns. But I'm sure he also thinks his grandchildren, you know, maybe won't die in sulfuric clouds or something. Mm. Maybe there's probably some goodwill in there. Don't you think? <laughs> or not? What with the, the Great Reset? I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, I think it's meant to be a balm, I think, for this kind of, this rift, this kind of tension that was kind of there before COVID, but I think threatened to become kind of insurmountable during COVID. I mean, but it does sort of seems well-intentioned, but I would say like a something of a stopgap. Yeah, that was a win way to wrap up here. How are you <laughs> feeling about things? I mean, I know you're, you can't use the state of conspiracy theory as a barometer no. for where society is going. That would be, that would be in itself dangerous, mm. right? Because it is just one, you know, it is contributor to culture. And it, sometimes it is a leading indicator in some ways, the kinds of things you see. But it's not like we had widespread fear of chupacabra in America. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Bigfoot was on TV when I was a kid. Bigfoot was like the $6 million man fought, you know, Bigfoot two or three times. And um, we didn't all go Bigfoot crazy in America. So it's not like mm. uh, it's all going to happen. But how are you feeling about things? I guess I was hinting at this before that I was maybe hopefully thinking that things are getting a little bit less jagged. And I hate to use the word like optimistic, but are you hopeful about the future? Do you see yourself growing up till <laughs> right through to old age naturally and you know wow having a a normal life yeah well you know i'm i'm a very cheerful person people people often say <laughs> this about me so i think i've got that that going for me i think i guess in terms of the conspiracy scene in my own country uh, you're right that people wasn't a, a sign of bigfoot mania and such <laughs> but i do think that there is something different now which is that these conspiracy movements just they might shrink they might calcify but they do just go on and on and they they wait for the next the next crisis do you know so i've heard it said less optimistically that we are in essentially in a state of perma crisis right now that mm. you know one just kind of leads into the next which i think you know in fairness when we we're talking about the world economic forum i think is the the situation that they were foreseeing and trying to address if i want to look totally selfish then it's probably quite a good time to be somebody who makes a living writing and thinking about weird beliefs because i don't <laughs> think those are those are going anywhere i think you know the level of threat that they that they have is going to ebb and flow depending on what they're responding to but i think yeah i think we're just in a, in a time for kind of mix and match strange ideas fringe beliefs yeah which doesn't sound so bad. And I guess it's right. It's when it does connect with my new favorite word, you know, uh, diagonalism, mm. when it becomes fodder, I guess. Yeah. It's easy fodder for some scary things that may or may not have anything to do with the conspiracy theory itself. Yeah. But it, it helps promote this sort of, and almost the, the worst part, it's not that it promotes just an anti-government or anti-authoritarian 
uh, urge, it can promote an anti-cooperative, an anti-collaborative, an anti-tolerant strain that is really, um, it's not conducive to getting through problems together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's my my concern looking forward in terms of like the, because if anything is going to be done about the climate, it is going to need to be an international cooperative effort, right? But if you've already kind of got in the culture that 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 idea in itself is an oppressive threat, then yeah, you kind of wonder how much popular support will be kind of rallied for that for that. And then the the frightening prospect is maybe they won't need popular support at all. Right. Where they're right. I mean, the the bottom up conspiracy theorist kind of people which would include me in this case, is that in many ways, scale itself is the problem, Mm. right? Capitalism operating at scale has destroyed the world. So does environment, is environmentalism working at scale the answer? Or is it environmentalism working in a bottom up decentralized Mm. and distributed fashion the answer? You know, many different little solutions rather than one big, great reset button to push. No, that's a that's a nice way of thinking about it, actually, and does does make me feel a little mo- bit more optimistic. I hope we could do it as little <laughs> little people in our little villages doing our little permaculture. Okay, yeah. you know, well, certainly the more of us do that, the less of a of a strain there is on the big top down, mm-hmm. you know, and mechanisms of of global scaled industry. You know, one less shipping container is is good. that's it we're gonna heal the world one One, shipping container container at a time time. (laughs) well i'm glad you exist i i'm (laughs) thank you i I love your work (laughs) not just hearing you but but now reading you 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 found such a a wonderful niche and do it so non-judgmentally it's it's quite less judgmentally than you than the co-hosts on that show i must add um (laughs) Which is, you know what I mean? They get too much. They, I mean, they're boys, but they get so much glee when, you know, some QAnon prediction fails. They just, mm. you know, <laughs> they're, ah, another victory. That's I mean, true. Although I have to I have to say in their defense, they have been following QAnon since the beginning. So maybe I, I will eventually also become the same. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's true. They were there. I mean, and the stuff that when they revealed about where one goes, we go all and all in the movie and the homoeroticism and all. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way they covered so much of it, well, all of you, in such uh, uh, entertaining tones, it made it less scary. You know, that's, mm. I kind of took a cue from that in the last book I did of like, how am I going to write about these tech bros who are trying to escape to their, you know, billionaire bunkers? And I said... With humor. Yeah. You know, if we can laugh at them, we, we take away their power, I think. Mm, yeah, I think that's one of the nicest things that, like, people say about the podcast, actually, is that, you know, particularly people who were going through, you know, a close family member sort of getting yeah. getting pilled or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, they'll always say, you know, oh, I just, like, really like the kind of, like, yeah, the the, the laughter you brought to this, this thing that felt just so kind of dark and insurmountable, so... Yeah, I do think it's yeah. an important technique. Oh, it is. That's when I, I turned to QAnon Anonymous when I lost my best friend to Q. Mm. You know, that was the moment. And it was so, first it was scary and then it was, he, I first I thought it was 
Q stuff originally just by the name. Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was going to be pro Q. I'm going to learn about his movement. <laughs> and then I'm like, wow, these Q people really don't take their movement that seriously. <laughs> and then I'm like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, this it is, is an ambiguous me. name. I often, when I sort of introduce myself, have to be like, you know, it's <laughs> it's not what it sounds like. <laughs> I know because it's redundant. You should know. Once you have two anonymous in the same in the same <laughs> phrase, we should realize this is if you've gone meta. But um, yeah, it, it takes a moment. So, do you know what the New York Times piece is is going to be called? By the time this runs, it'll probably that piece will be mm. out. Or when does it? Do you know what what date it runs? I don't yet. No, all they've told me is sometime in July, and I don't even have a title oh, yet. July. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we'll run it. But everybody watch out for the New York Times. It'll probably be in a Sunday review section. Yes, that's what I've been told. Yeah. yeah. A great piece on the way that um, conspiracy theory has has really uh, changed, I guess, as it's migrated from traditional media to the age of the internet, right? Yeah, that's right. You're You're quoted in it, in fact. I'm quoted in it, which is why I got the gumption to uh, contact you <laughs> to come on to on to team human even though i know you're a, a much a sought after voice in these spaces so thank you so much for doing it and please know that if there's anything you ever need i and team human are here are here for you seriously if there's you know something you need promoted or done or amplified oh, no, um, i'd be you. i'd be honored to participate or someone you can't connect to that maybe i could help with that's what I'm here for. No, thank you so much. I'll almost certainly take you up on that. Cool. Thank you for being on Team Human. It's been an honor to have you. Oh, thank you. It's been great being here. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Dr. Annie Kelly. You can find links to her work at teamhuman.fm. If you want to get an ad-free version of this show, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can subscribe for as little as two bucks a month and get the ad-free feed, the Team Human Team feed. You get access to our Discord channel and our monthly live salons, as well as the Rushkoff archive and all sorts of other great things that you get being part of our extended community. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. And you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.